You're listening to Don't Waste Water. We've changed the game with grafting coatings alone, but to go one step further, we needed to address the underlying problem in membranes. And that's that they're not precision engineered devices. They're essentially pieces of polymer or ceramic with randomly sized, randomly distributed holes in, many of which don't go anywhere, they're dead-ended. Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. If we look at our graphene oxide coatings, we can double the selectivity, whether that's food or lithium or other products. With our spacer technology, if we look at desalination, around a 30% reduction in the energy consumption for desalination by incorporating our spacer tech. For our insert technology in food and beverage processing, we've reduced energy consumption by up to 80%. We've also flipped it on its head as well and increased production capacity by 4 to 5x. I'm your host, Antoine Walter, and in today's episode, I'm thrilled to welcome Chris Wires as my guest. We're looking at markets where existing membranes really struggle and cannot provide a cost-effective solution with a minimal impact on the environment. Lithium seemed to be one of them, and we determined that selectivity was the key issue. It's very difficult to selectively filter lithium from other salts, so whether that's calcium, magnesium, sodium, potassium. And we thought there was fantastic alignment with our coatings technology in the first instance. Chris is the CEO of Evolve. To be clear, Anton, what we've designed here is not just a membrane. We've designed an entire end-to-end solution for very efficient and cost-effective production of lithium carbonate. Evolve aims to take membranes to the next level, overcoming the inherent flaws in conventional architectures, hence transforming membranes, transforming separation and filtration. In the middle of the 19th century, a Belgian inventor, Adolf Sax, conceived what's known today as the saxophone, which is the fourth most popular instrument nowadays, just behind the piano, the guitar and the bass. Yet, it wasn't Sax's only invention, as he also conceived Sax trombas, Sax tubas, considerably improved the bass clarinet and invented the Sax horns that also still somewhat live today. Yet, have you ever heard of the Ophicleid or of the serpent? I could keep naming many more less successful instruments, and if you want to get an anthology of all of them, look up an original score from Mendelssohn or Berlioz. Romantic era composers really leveraged that wave of new ways to produce all kinds of sounds. Each of these inventions addressed specific needs, but not all overcame their flaws or found a clear use case, like the saxophones with the military orchestras. And so only a few stood the test of time. To me, the membrane world today resembles a lot of the mid-19th century orchestras. It's tingling with incredible ideas, new takes, new materials, radical approaches and blooming innovation. We've addressed several of them on that microphone, from membrane ceramic ion exchanging membranes to Zwitterco Zwitter ionic material, through Sembrane Lictech, a membrane anthology with Graham Pierce or the history of MBRs with Andrew Benedek. But with the boom in membrane applications, there are also new needs, new challenges and new markets to address, which keeps incentivizing and rewarding innovation and differentiated approaches. Evolve actually ticks all these boxes. They're actively developing new application fields, such as lithium extraction or green hydrogen production, while building the rocket on the go with their Enhance and Separonix product lines. They're also bringing new perks to membrane applications in desalination of food and beverage, and they're inventing a new type of company, decentralized, finely adapted to each vertical, 
and frankly ambitious. We've got a tremendous pipeline of opportunities which will help this business achieve its objective very quickly to have a pipeline of opportunities that can generate over a billion a year in recurring revenue. I won't spoil you too much of what Chris very openly shares in today's interview and don't worry, I'll leave him the floor just after reminding you that if you like what you hear, if this is of any value to you, please take that episode and share it with a friend, a colleague, your boss or your team. Thanks a lot to all the ones I see doing it every week. That's really heartwarming to me, so thank you again. Is Evolve a saxophone or an Ophiclonid? Time will tell, but you can build an idea for yourself right after this. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. I'm excited about today's conversation for many reasons. I mean, your company itself, what you're doing, which sounds like really special in this water sphere, and also from another perspective and for another kind of adjacent topic, which is not directly water, but has to do with water, which is lithium. So that's what I have on my agenda for today. I'll elaborate a bit in a second. But I have traditions on that microphone, which starts with a postcard. And you're sending me a postcard today from Daresbury. So what can you tell me about Daresbury, which I would ignore by now? Daresbury, the site that we're on, it's part of the UK Science and Technology Facility. And we're very fortunate to have a lot of expertise on site and facilities which we're able to access and leverage, including the UK's highest performance supercomputing facility, which is an IBM UK government stronghold. And that's what we typically use to do rapid modeling, computational modeling of many of the membranes we're developing as well as various other simulations we use for additive manufacturing. You mentioned membranes and also said straight from the introduction that it has to do with the water industry. Yet, I'm curious to understand how you got personally into this water world. What led you to that challenging environment? Yeah, G2O was founded by some friends of mine, two of which I'd worked with in a previous business, which I led through to exit. They knew my background in material science and tech development and asked me to provide some advice on their strategy. So I joined the board. I was providing advice and then just got more and more involved in the project. This was part of a portfolio I'd started building of tech businesses, which I thought could make real impact across many different sectors, whether that's urban air mobility or water. But this has really fascinated me, both from the challenge that presented, but as well as the potential impact we can create. If we're looking at climate change, I think there's a phrase used a lot that there is no green without blue. And start to understand the critical role that water plays in climate change, I became more and more passionate about delivering a solution that could really help. And membranes lie at the heart of all water processing applications. You mentioned how you got more passionate about it, which I would translate into you joined the company on the board and then you took over the company and ran as the CEO of G2 Water Technologies and then transformed it into its current name of Evolve. So what's the story? Yeah, there were really two angles to this. G2O was founded around 
using graphene oxide coatings applied to membranes. When I joined the business full-time, we took a long, hard look at the strategy and the impact we could deliver using graphene oxide coating. I think it's tremendous, don't get me wrong. We've made a lot of progress. We've changed the game with graphene coatings alone. But to go one step further, we needed to address the underlying problem in membranes. And that's that they're not precision-engineered devices. They're essentially pieces of polymer or ceramic with randomly sized, randomly distributed holes in, many of which don't go anywhere, they're dead-ended. They don't offer you precise control over the structure and the properties you can deliver. So we decided to develop a new way of making membranes, and that was based around 3D printing. So the products the business was going to offer, its strategy had changed fundamentally, and we wanted to reflect that in a new branding. Also, the application areas which we were addressing had broadened from typical water-based applications into things that are going to underpin the energy transition, so specifically lithium and green hydrogen production. So it's that whole change of emphasis that we wanted to reflect in a new brand. And Evove was what we created, which I think is very distinct from many other brands in the space, both in color palette, but also in its name. So you're saying you're, you're not blue? Yes. Which which is the difference? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And Andrew Walker, our CMO, was instrumental in many of the decisions there. And he's a seasoned water professional and he said let's do something that's not water and he had my full support for that in terms of standing out absolutely that works and kudos to andrew for that one and also for putting us together in that call because he was instrumental in preparing that discussion you mentioned membranes so that's the obvious lead for me to dive into our deep dive for today because i'd like to understand you've mentioned some of the elements i'd like to start from the problem you're aiming to solve which is this element of membranes have random pore sizes, some of them being dead end, as you just mentioned. So I guess that is the problem you're aiming to solve. How did you identify that problem and what's the real challenge inside that problem? So in terms of identifying the problem, we got a very talented bunch of scientists and engineers. And the first thing they did was analyze existing membranes. We took cross sections, did high power microscopy, built digital twins, computational models, looked at how fluids flow through these structures and identified all of the issues we needed to overcome to build a perfect membrane. It's very clear once you start doing the computational modeling that the structures are suboptimal and they're limited by the current manufacturing techniques. You just don't have the level of control you'd like over pore size, distribution, the three-dimensional architecture which sits below each pore. So you can't really optimize the flow properties of these devices. Whereas but using 3D printing, you're able to control every aspect that I've mentioned there. So you can precisely define the pore size. You can precisely define what you're filtering, whether that's a given molecular weight or a physical size in terms of size of particle. Does that mean that the key driver here is the graphene material or the 3D printing? It's two very distinct approaches. We use graphene oxide coatings. We apply coatings to the surface of existing membranes to refine the pore size and structure. But there's only so far we can go. If you have pores which are 100 times bigger than other pores in that particular membrane, there's only so far a coating can bridge that gap. So you then have to address the fundamental issue. Let's just get the pore size under control. Let's precision engineer the pore sizes. And then you build down from there through the substructure. How do we minimize the energy requirements to push water through this membrane? How do we build structures then which prevent fouling and scaling? both on the surface and substructure, really addressing all of the issues which people typically see right across the water space. Let me just ensure I pin the challenge right here, which is you've done these cross-cuttings and this in-depth computational study of 
the existing membranes. Yes. What I noted down in, in my preparation work is that you found out that 17% of the actual surface is used today. Yeah. I met- Can you go to 100% or what's the leapfrog here? Well, 17% is a typical number you see in most membranes. It can be higher, it can be lower. And it's not just about that though, Antoine. It's about what you do with the fluid once it passes through the initial surface, how you manage the fluid dynamics what energy requirements there are to address the big problems. If we're looking at climate change, it's all about reducing the amount of energy required to process the fluid, get to a product, provide a vital service. And so that entire package you're describing here is that what makes your, and I quote your website, perfect membrane? Yeah, that's the goal. We're precision engineering membranes for specific applications and we were able to drive down the energy requirements quite significantly, up to 80%. Can you give me the special sauce and the trick to bring that energy requirement down? It's not just one single ingredient. It is a sauce, as you say. So it's about having a way of precision engineering the membrane, building a three-dimensional architecture which minimizes the energy required to process that fluid through the structure, but also having a structure which filters or separates what you want to remove from that fluid. So that could be defined by pore size. It can be defined by other specific elements in the structure. So it's really just taking all of those variables in the input feed water or fluid and precision engineering a three-dimensional architecture to process that fluid and give the desired product, whether that's salt removal, food processing, et cetera, et cetera. I have a question for the stupid, which in that room is clearly me. If I read right, you're 3D printing the membrane, the spacer, and the liner. Can we just explain, like really, for the layman, what do those terms mean and what does that mean? Yeah, sorry, Anton. I didn't do a good job in explaining really our product portfolio. So there are two ranges. We have our enhanced range, which are products we apply to membranes to enhance the performance. And they include the graphene oxide coatings, spaces which go into spiral wound membranes but we 3d print those spaces we don't use conventional manufacturing and inserts which go into tubular or hollow fiber membranes again 3d printed shapes which optimize flow our fully 3d printed membranes are what we call separonics and they're distinctly different but we'll come back to those so graphene oxide coatings really straightforward you apply them to the existing membranes we've made them retrofitable to finished membrane modules so integration is very simple our spacer technology and the big application for us here is is ro desalination if you look in that industry what issues do they have in terms of membranes well fouling and scaling is a big issue that's caused by many different components in the membrane but principally the spacers play a big role there they create dead zones in the flow which allows things to accumulate or biofouling to occur the spacers also don't manage what's called pressure drop across the a membrane as you're pumping fluid through a membrane the pressure drops the bigger the pressure drop the more energy you consume so we designed our spaces to eliminate dead zones create turbulent flow and to minimize the pressure drop let's make the membrane work in an optimal fashion and minimize the energy required to process a given volume of fluid for that enhance product line and approach do you have like some numbers or keep from yep. indicators to tell us how yep. you can enhance all Yeah, if we look at our graphene oxide coatings, we can double the selectivity, whether that's food or lithium or other products. With our spacer technology, if we look at desalination, around a 30% reduction in the energy consumption for desalination by incorporating our spacer tech. For our insert technology in food and beverage processing, we've reduced energy consumption by up to 80%. We've also flipped it on its head as well 
and increased production capacity by four to five X. Impressive. <laughs> yes. If I'm right, you have what you just described. So the enhanced product range is commercial today and Jeez. your other product, the Ciparonix membrane that is in development stage and might be commercial in 2024. Correct. That right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So we're working through scale up this year and that was one of the big asks in terms of the fundraise. Yeah. This capital intensive process. So you mentioned the fundraise. Let's dive into that. You just announced a 5.7 million pounds funding round with two new investors in your capital. So at one ventures and AM ventures, I think it's in the name, the venture elements, but what's the story of that funding round? What do you aim to achieve with that? Yeah. So the objectives and the use of funds are really to expand our manufacturing capability for both our enhanced products and our separonics products and to scale the business globally, establish a global strategic partner network, increase manufacturing capacity establish a global strategic partner network so we can roll this out across all of our target sectors. And from the specific profile of your investors, what does that tell about the future of your company? At One Ventures are a very forward-thinking impact fund, very focused on addressing climate change. So it tells you there's good alignment with the impact our technologies can have there. And they only really invest in businesses that absolutely change the game in specific industries. Our business is right now is really focused on lithium and leveraging the tech into green hydrogen production and we can really change the unit economics there so the cost of manufacturing lithium end-to-end -end and also minimize the impact on the environment which is often the forgotten element in you know the energy transition it's all well and good creating lithium and green hydrogen but if actually the carbon impact on the environment and physical impact on the environment is much higher than the as is then what's the point very true to understand your your point on the production capability, so you will be enhancing your production capability, but do you speak of production of membranes or production of yeah. membrane printing devices? It's both. We're going to expand our manufacturing capability so we can produce more membranes, including spiral winding membranes with our spacer elements, coating, 3D printing the inserts and 3D printing the spacers on a much bigger scale. But in the long run, what do you intend to do? Do you intend to be a membrane company, a membrane printing company, a technology house which licenses its technology to other players? What's your vision? Principally a membrane manufacturer, but we keep our business model flexible because we understand in certain territories and certain sectors that basically there's not a one-size-fits-all model. So the model in semiconductors is vastly different to the model in food and beverage, which is vastly different to the model in desalination or lithium or green hydrogen. Ultimately, what I, I see the bulk of the business being is regionalized manufacturing hubs where we have a range of 3D printers and conventional membrane manufacturing equipment. When you were called G2O, I guess you had to produce membranes out of graphene. Now that you're named Evo, could that mean that you might be also looking at other materials in the future? Let's address that first bit. We've never sought to make membranes purely of graphene. We took a coatings approach, so we took existing membranes and applied a very thin coating, really to regulate the pore size distribution and the surface properties of the membrane to create anti-scaling, anti-fouling. That that was a very clear. <laughs> yeah, it's a very clear distinction between the strategy in graphene that we adopted compared to most of our peers who were trying to make the entire membrane from graphene, which is a noble thing to do and makes a lot of sense from a scientific perspective. But when you try to engineer a membrane, which is quite a complex device in that way, 
it's difficult and it's also very expensive to make it purely out of graphene. But does that mean that in the future you might be looking at coatings which are not of graphene? You could apply your coating to basically any type of membrane. I've been told by people looking at you and saying it's really like a great technology and very promising, but it sounds very challenging to coat in graphene. So No, that's confusion in the marketplace. My background is it last 15 years in the digital printing business, a lot of coatings, inks involved. A lot of our team are from those sorts of sectors as well. So we've developed coatings which are very easy to apply. We apply them typically to finished modules. We can also integrate the coating process into existing membrane manufacturing, but actually the easiest way is to have a retrofitable product. We simply just pump it through under controlled conditions prior to the membrane going into service. So it's very quick, easy, and cost-effective. We apply a very thin coating, so it's not overly affecting the physical structure of the membrane itself, but that thin coating has a significant effect on the properties of the membrane and its performance. You mentioned your various application fields. Mm. One of them, if not the first of them, you'll, you'll tell me, being lithium. Yes. What took you to this application? Yeah, that's a very good question. We're looking at markets where existing membranes really struggle and cannot provide a cost-effective solution with a minimal impact on the environment. Lithium seemed to be one of them, and we determined that selectivity was the key issue. It's very difficult to selectively filter lithium from calcium, magnesium, sodium, potassium. And we thought there was fantastic alignment with our coatings technology in the first instance. So the team set about taking existing membranes and adapting them to enable lithium to be selectively recovered. In terms of the thought process and the history of that move, G2O Water Technologies was created in 2015, if I'm right? Correct. At which point of time did you realize that you had that competitive advantage with your coating technology within that lithium sector? It's probably as recently as 2021. Yeah, we run a tech business. The guys, to be honest, get a, a fair bit of freedom in what they do. So it probably emanated from a Skunk Works project, as all good things do. So yeah, visibility for us was really in about 2021, just as I think the lithium market was starting to report a big potential future supply gap. And so what's the first project? How does it start? The first project starts with us supplying a pilot scale system for testing on site and that will be happening most likely in the UK. That will be our first deployment. And then we build out from there. To be clear, Anton, what we've designed here is not just a membrane. We've designed an entire end-to-end -end solution for very efficient and cost-effective production of lithium carbonate. That's exactly what I'd like to understand, which is you are on one end a membrane company, but when it goes to DLE, so direct lithium extraction, straight off the bat, you decide to go from end to end. So what's the reasoning there? Quite simply that we've been able to design and build a process which is fully optimized and is far more efficient than existing systems. We have membranes on the front end, then we have downstream refining processes. If we went and bought an off-the-shelf, if there is such a thing, a piece of equipment for refining the geothermal waters or brines, then it wouldn't be optimized for the feed water which we're producing after our membrane filtration stage. It would be much bigger and it would cost more to manufacture the end product in all honesty, and it'd be far more complex. So we've taken the view that we'll optimize each of those subsequent processes so that we have best-in-class technology 
end-to-end. But best-in-class technology, which might come from third party. Yeah. You're mentioning how off-the-shelf equipment might simply not exist in that space unless you have the ability to custom design that shelf and bring it as close as possible to the equipment use place, right? As a business, at the heart of our strategy is localized manufacturing. It's one of the key benefits of, of 3D printing, additive manufacturing. That really enables it. The thought of building equipment and shipping it halfway around the world horrifies me. I think that the carbon footprint which would be associated with that is horrendous, absolutely horrendous. Our strategy in the lithium sector is to take our designs and we have local partners who can manufacture in the region and supply the equipment. I've used one acronym yet, which is DLE, so this is direct lithium extraction. I've heard on that microphone, for instance, when I was discussing with Ben Sparrow from Saltworks, we discussed about CRC, Concentrate, Refine and Convert. Yes. You are using one different acronym from what I read, which is IPR for isolation, polishing and refining. Yeah. So how does that describe the process? So three steps. The first, we isolate the lithium. We get rid of all of the problematic elements, typically calcium, magnesium, etc. in that first stage. So that the downstream polishing and refinement process is far more compact, far more cost-effective, far more efficient. Sorry to, to catch you. So isolation is what you do with your gra- membranes. Gra- membranes. Yes, it is. And we use our 3D printed spacer technology in those membranes to minimize the energy requirements and prevent fouling and scaling. Very clear. Okay. So isolation, very clean feed containing monovalent ions, particularly lithium. It then goes into a polishing stage just to take out any PPB levels, any tail of calcium magnesium that's crept through. You don't want to be a pain, but <laughs> your polishing step, very clear what it does, but how do you do it? We use a proprietary ion exchange technology. Okay, so you not only intend to change the, the phase of membranes, you also intend to change the phase of ion exchange. Yeah, but we can make it work with other ion exchange, but we have a preferred system, which is just more efficient and effective. Can you crack me the secret of it? No. No, that's right. <laughs> no. So again, we isolate it. We then take out any final impurities and then we move into a refinement step, which is again, it's a proprietary ion exchange technology where we effectively isolate the lithium and concentrate it. And this is a very important step. Typically people we use RO membranes to concentrate, which are energy hungry and comparatively inefficient and will occupy a large footprint on most plants. So we don't need that. So it's simple membrane filtration in the first stage. We clean it up a little bit more, polish it in in the second stage, and then we refine it into a very high quality lithium chloride feed, which can then be processed into the battery grade materials. So the output of your extraction is lithium chloride, and then you use, I guess, market standard routes to go from chloride to carbonate or chloride to hydroxide, depending on what's needed. Correct. The purity and the concentration of our feed makes the subsequent steps much easier as well. So we've taken this whole end-to-end solution approach so we can minimize the footprint, minimize the cost, and most importantly, minimize the impact on the environment of this refinement process. You mentioned how your first 2021 project was in the UK, which is not known to have the high content of lithium, which you can find in Argentina. So I think that kind of gives us already a part of the answer. But what is the typical lithium concentration you're looking for in these geothermal brines or whatever source you're looking at? It doesn't really matter. 
Another USP for our solution is that we can work with either very low lithium concentrations, as low as 10 or 20 ppm, right up to several hundred ppm lithium concentration. More importantly, though, is the what makes up the rest of the feed, the composition. And we can tackle easy brines, at, which are, look like seawater, 45, 50,000 TDS levels, or we can do the really difficult stuff, which is 300,000 plus TDS, loaded with calcium, loaded with magnesium, really challenging feeds that other people really struggle with. But our system, it's such a broad capability, we can deal with all of it. Magnesium is usually seen as the one which is the most problematic by conventional approaches. I hear you how that is less if a problem at all for your technology. Do you have like another scavenger, like one which would be then your specific nemesis? No, I would, <laughs> I would, I'd probably say the sodium and potassium levels are probably the next biggest concern. But there's not a lot that we found we've encountered in the market that we've not been able to deal with. So that's for the technological side of things. From a business perspective, when you say end-to-end, -end, I could see you bolted at any of the ends actually with your customers. So do you work with the developer to look at a way to develop its resource? Do you work with the battery manufacturer to kind of be selling the lithium elements? How is it coming into music from a business perspective? We typically work with the companies who are extracting the, the brines. So that makes me a very smooth bridge to my own personal project because I might be then your customer if I get it right. Okay. I mean, I mentioned project. It's not a project. It's a thought exercise. But directly in my backyard, there is a lithium resource, which for many reasons is a very complex project. It used to be a set of potash mines. Mm. Those potash mines exhausted their potash contents at the beginning of this century, so beginning of the 21st century, when they got converted into landfills that didn't last long because they took fire. And since 20 years now, there's this open environmental topic in my region of what shall we do with that waste which half burns and which is 300 meters down in the potash mines. And there were concerns around the water which is surrounding that landfill. And when they looked up the analysis of that water, they found out that there is quite a high content of lithium. So we are speaking here of, I have two samples. One is at 310 ppm, the other is at 430 ppm. And as a thought exercise, I'm looking into potentially developing that resource. And I'm discussing with market players and technology companies like you to get their very qualified and informed view on that stuff, which to me is just a sheet of paper and I'm trying to understand what to do with it. So what would you advise as a way forward, starting with that resource, if I wanted to see what's feasible and what I can do with it? First comment is, and that's a very high quality lithium feed. The concentrations are very good of the lithium. It then comes down to the rest of the composition. But our process is very straightforward. You know, we'll get a copy of the composition, we'll prepare synthetic brines that are exactly the same as that, do some quick lab tests, so that we very quickly get to a full techno-economic analysis and feasibility on what we're going to need to do to process this brine to extract the lithium. And then we come back to the customer and say, how does this look? Are we in the right price bracket? Is the footprint available to put this plant down to process it at your target scale? You mentioned a keyword which sounds very important, which is very quickly. Yes. Everybody I talked to so far said to me, it's a race. It's an interesting race, but it's a race. So you have to be fast. So when you say very quickly, how much time are we discussing here? One to two weeks. So 
that's beyond very quickly. That's light fast. Yeah. Every inquiry which comes into our business, whether it's simple or complex, we answer within 30 days and keep the communication going with the customer all the way through. We have a dedicated, very experienced, very professional customer success team who manage that process end to end. Again, from what I heard from other companies are active in that space. I mean, I didn't speak with many technology companies. I spoke with project developers, with consultants. There are not so many technology plays either, which are deemed to be legit by all the people I spoke with. And you're one of these legit companies, which is also why I'm so excited to speak with you. That disclaimer made, what many told me is that they get a lot of inquiries. Like everybody sees that there is this lithium spot price at 70,000 or 80,000 per, per ton right now which makes a lot of projects potentially profitable at that height. So how flooded are you with the demands? We've got a tremendous pipeline of opportunities, which will help this business achieve its objective. One of our key objectives this year is to have a pipeline of opportunities that can generate over a billion a year in recurring revenue. I think it's a matter of ambition. And mm. I've really rapid fired so many of my guests on that microphone and asked them if they were in for hypergrowth. And I think I have a rate of like 99% of no. And the last one person might be a probably no, but we'll see. You're, I guess, the first to so openly say that you aim to this hypergrowth route and with a sound confidence from what I hear from your voice. Yeah, absolutely. Growth is limited by three things, really. Capital, obviously, you've got to be funded well enough. We have a fantastic investor base. We have a business which I think is highly attractive. We're getting good traction across multiple markets with some really blue chip companies. And the second aspect you've got to consider outside of capital and the attractiveness of the business to its, its end customers is really how quickly you can scale your manufacturing. Because if you can't supply product, then you can't make sales. 3D printing, and the other technologies which we're utilizing in our business are rapidly scalable. Uh, and also, we don't need a lot of real estate to create large volume production facilities. I just wanted to close the arc on the lithium part just to be exhaustive and then because I have more questions for you. Coming back to my thought exercise projects, do I have a tier one, tier two, tier three project here? Look, three to 400 ppm lithium, that's a very good starting point. Depends on the size of the deposits to where we prioritize it. So that's the missing piece of information. How much have you got? I guess that's the next question I need to have an answer for. I don't have it yet, yeah. but <laughs> yeah. Do, do you have a puddle or do you have a, a, an intern, a sea? It's part of a very big aquifer, but then how much of that very big aquifer has that concentration is undetermined. I'll do my homework. Lithium is one of your vectors for growth. And you just shared how your growth shall be in, in a hate where maybe one vector isn't sufficient. So the next one is green hydrogen. So what do you intend to do there? Green hydrogen is essential to the energy transition. More important than lithium, in fact, in the longer term perspective. The key issue with green hydrogen is that you effectively need ultra pure water to make these electrolyzers work at their most effective. So ultra pure water, like you use in the semiconductor industry, which we all know is a process which is the conversion rates are terrible. To get one liter of ultra pure water, 15 to 20 liters of potable water as your input feed. That's a very interesting insight you're uncovering here because so far when I discussed green hydrogen with some of my guests. It was a matter of desalinating water. Like I did a full deep dive, like I'm doing like currently a deep dive on lithium. I did a full deep dive on hydrogen last year. And one of the output were 
yeah, if anyways, you're going to desalinate a bit of water, you can desalinate a bit more and that bit more can feed your green hydrogen production. But if now you're adding these new pieces to the puzzle, which is to say, yeah, just raw desalinated water might not be sufficient. You have to go to ultra pure water standard. Yes. That's a different game. Why do you need to go to that quality of water? It, essentially, any of the impurities, even at PPB level, will accumulate in the electrolyzers and make them more inefficient. They'll impact the efficiency and in many cases lead to degradation. If you get scaling on the surfaces, for instance, your only answer, other than continuous cleaning, which just destroys them anyway, is to keep ramping up the voltage, if you like. Keep it very simple. So you're driving them harder and harder, which brings the lifetime down. And so what's your answer to that? So our answer is that using our membrane technology, we have a very efficient way of making ultra-pure water. So conversion efficiencies are higher. The energy requirement is much, much lower. There's no point in making hydrogen where the carbon footprint of making the water outweighs the, the gains of using hydrogen as a fuel. Does that mean that you can fundamentally solve this imbalance of green hydrogen being three times more expensive than black hydrogen? We can play a big role in that. Yes, very much. And we see our separonics technology in particular being able to do that. My personal opinion on the matter is this is going to require subsea desalination in the first instance, which means your membranes have got to be highly effective because you can't just swim to the bottom of the ocean and maintain your membrane plant. It's going to be down there 20, 30 years plus. It's got to be low maintenance. It's got to be ultra-efficient, and that's what we think Separonics can deliver. That's the starting point. And then, obviously, once you have the desalinated water, it's then converting that into ultra-pure in a very cost-effective and efficient manner. And again, Separonics plays a big role in that. You're opening a fascinating new door here. And I'm sorry, because I can push for long new doors. So at some point, you have also to stop me. But subsea desalination, is it something you've already worked on? We have some pro active projects in the space. Would it be maybe Norway? No, it's not. Okay, I'm fishing. <laughs> yeah. Does it have something to do with your partnership with SWCC? No, not. That's um, very focused on desalination and brine harvesting. But yeah, desalination is the main focus there, driving down the energy consumption in desalination in particular. Okay, so I'll keep my radars very active because I'm really interested in when you are ready to talk a bit more openly about this subsea desalination. Sounds like a fascinating topic. I have one last very important chapter on my agenda, which is this partnership you have with SWCC, which is the largest desalinator in the world. If I am right, it has something to do with magnesium. It's one aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, we obviously have a level of confidentiality that I have to be mindful of. But I would say the goals of our program with SWCC are aligned to their very publicly in, uh, announced goals. Yeah, brine harvesting and driving down the cost and energy requirements in desalination. In that order? Like number one brine harvesting? No. No. That, I think if you look at what they publicly state, number one is driving down the energy requirements for desalination, making that process far more effective. And they have big growth ambitions, a big national and regional requirement to increase their desalination capacity significantly over the next 10 years in line with their intended population growth. So I think they have to find the best in class technologies to achieve those goals. They're targeting below two kilowatt hours per cubic meter, which compared to most desalination plants today is a long way away. If I zoom out from the various applications and technologies we've discussed today, I'll try to put it in my words and you'll tell me how much of a shortcut I'm taking and how wrong I'm, I might be. You have your today's business, which is around Enhance and your DLE technology. You have your 
tomorrow business, which is around Ciperonics and everything it will enable in terms of applications, for instance, green hydrogen. And desalination sounds like something you're covering today with Enhance, but which is a bit smaller than the lithium portion. I'm just trying to wrap my head around it. So if you had to put like very rough numbers around it, how much do you do in, in lithium? How much do you do in the other applications? And how will that mix evolve in the future? If you looked at a mix over the next five years, 70% will be in the lithium space and the rest will be spread across food and beverage, desalination, green hydrogen, which is a very early stage industry. In the next five years, it needs to grow quickly, of course, but yeah, it's still a very early stage industry. If you look 20 years out, the mix is going to change and green hydrogen will become an equally big part as lithium as that sector emerges. And usually I'm asking to close this dip dive kind of crystal ball question and saying, look in the future, like in 10 years, what did you achieve? For you, I had already intended to go only five years in the future because you sound to have like a rapid path. What I heard from you previously today is that three years might be the right horizon, but I'll let you pick if you want to see where you are in three or in five years. But what will tell you that you've had an impact? I think first and foremost is a large install base across our target sectors. That is the first indicator of success. I think the second indicator of success would be a global partnership network that's able to supply, service, and support our business across multiple sectors in multiple regions. Which kind of partners are you looking for? It depends on the sector. Where possible, we try to work directly with the end users, minimize the supply chain, but in certain sectors, we have to work with like semiconductors. So it's, it's a well-established supply chain and in industry. So we have to work with the usual service providers in that sector. Desalination, similar. You have to work through the EPCs. So. Very clear. So you stand your point. You will build a billion dollar opportunity pipeline in the next three years. I hope so. We're very confident. We have a game-changing business, transformational products, and very strong traction in the market in multiple sectors, whether it's lithium, with green hydrogen, semiconductors, food and beverage, desalination, or localized recycling of industrial wastewaters. Well, Chris, thanks a lot for that in-depth tour of Evolve. And I'd be looking forward to make updates on your path to that unicorn target. I mean, you made it clear it might be the result, but you have very actionable targets in between. Yes. So I'm really looking forward to that SQL conversation. To round off today's one, I have a set of rapid fire questions. If you're fine with that, I would transition to that last section. Of course. It's time for the rapid fire questions. So in that last section, I'm asking short questions, which aim for short answers. Usually I'm the one sidetracking, so don't worry. My first question is, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? The most exciting project we've been working on. We have so many, to be honest. That's a really difficult question. For sure, it's in the lithium space. We have some fantastic opportunities, one in particular with a very forward thinking operator in Canada. It has an incredibly challenging feed and the team have been very successful in solving the challenge. So really tough challenge. We've solved it and the partner is really excited about the potential and they have enormous deposits. I, I warned you that I'm the one sidetracking. So here's my sidetrack. I have actually two sidetracks. First, I, I was in Canada some weeks ago to interview some players within that deep dive for lithium and they told me everything's big in Canada. So you have like 
low concentrations maybe yes. but like huge deposits so i guess that mirrors pretty well what you just explained my question here is in that dle word you sound to me like an outlier because you're a european or not really european anymore let's say a uk british company most of the players are north american and australian do you feel like left alone no i don't think we do we're engaged with organizations across north america latin america europe so i think You're right, we do look a bit like an outlier. And I think the alignment with that phrase is that we have something very different to everybody else. So it's in terms of techno in terms of technology, in terms of the growth prospects and the ability to deliver on what we say we can deliver on, we're certainly not an outlier. Well, sorry for the sidetrack, but I was curious I had to ask. So back to my rapid fire questions. Can you name one thing that you've learned the hard way? One thing I've learned the hard way since being involved in the water sector, the pace is incredibly slow. I guess that's what all my guests from outside the industry are the most surprised when they start with, but still, you intend yeah. to change that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's two parts to, to that. The pace of adoption of technology is slow. And the second part is that funding of water sector is woefully low. It's changing, thankfully with much more focus on the water sector, really. The specialist funds are emerging, but it needs to accelerate. Yet, and I'm not opening a sidetrack, so it's just my remark here. Yet you've been funded by funds which are not water specialists. So it sounds like when you really have a compelling business case, you can find investors which are outside that, that specific sphere. Absolutely. Is there something you're doing today in your job that you will not be doing in 10 years? Good question. I won't be doing in 10 years traveling as much. It's I, incredible how often that answer comes. So I, I take your point. What is the trend to watch out for in the water sector? Evolve. <laughs> That's a good one. I, I take it. Last question. Would you have someone to recommend me that I should definitely speak with as soon as possible on that microphone? I would actually say one of the managing partners at, at One Ventures who have a very different approach to venture funding and addressing climate change. Well taken. I guess once I'm done with my lithium deep dive, I'll take a breath. And then my next deep dive is probably going to be into the venture world. Some of the things you mentioned today, like the low level of investment into the water sphere, but also how specific players like the one which you've teamed up with are going into that sphere. I guess your suggestion might be very, very well used there as well. Yes. Well, Chris, it's been a pleasure to explore the path of Evolve so far with you today. And I stand my case. I'd be really delighted to have a sequel and an update at some point in the future. If people want to follow up with you, where shall you contact you the best? The best place to contact me is via email, either direct into my email or via our info box. If you're fine with that, I'll put your, your email in the show notes. Thanks a lot for the thoughtful conversation. And I hope to speak to you soon. Likewise. Thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.